0: It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Have you heard that line before? Do you know where that line comes from? That's the opening line to A Tale of Two Cities. A Tale of Two Cities is a a novel that was written by Charles Dickens back in 1859, and it's actually the second best selling fiction book of all time. Now, if you're curious, the number one selling fiction book of all time is Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. Uh, And by far, the number one best-selling nonfiction book of all time is the Bible. Uh, But a tale of two cities, number number two best-selling fiction book of all time. I remember reading this book back in high school or college. Now, I have to be honest and say I don't really remember a whole lot about the book. But I do remember that opening line. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That opening line, it, it grabs your attention and it draws you in. And I'm not a literary critic, but I think I know why that line grabs your attention. It's that sharp contrast between those two phrases. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Now, long before Charles Dickens wrote A Tale of Two Cities, Luke wrote A Tale of Two Givers. Luke wrote about two givers in the early church. And you could summarize their stories by saying they were the best of givers and they were the worst of givers. And Luke placed these two stories of these two givers back to back in the book of Acts. And he did that so that the contrast would would stand out and grab our attention and draw us in. Now, we often miss the contrast between these two stories. And, and the reason why we often miss the contrast is that one tale is told at the end of chapter 4. And then the other tale is told at the beginning of chapter 5. And what often happens when we read our Bibles is, is we read... Chapter 4, and we read about the best of givers, and when we finish the chapter, we close our Bible and set it down, and then the next time we come back to our Bible and pick it up and start reading chapter 5 about the worst of givers, we've already forgotten about what we read in chapter 4. So, so we miss the contrast between those two stories that are back to back, and when we miss the contrast, we miss some of the things that God wants to teach us. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read and discuss the last part of Acts chapter 4 and the first part of Acts chapter 5 together as a single unit. I'm going to read them and discuss them as a single unit because I think Luke wants us to see them as a single unit. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the the chapter and the verse numbers that are in our Bibles, they, they weren't a part of the original inspired text. When Luke was writing Acts, he didn't say to himself, well, I guess that's enough for today. Let me end this chapter, and then tomorrow I'll start a new one. Now, when Luke wrote Acts, he just, he just wrote it straight through, and so did all the other biblical authors when they wrote their books. The chapter numbers and the verse numbers were added later to help us look up and reference the different parts of the Scripture. The chapter numbers were added in around 1300 A.D., and the verse numbers came in around 1500 A.D., Now, the chapter and verse numbers, they're helpful in many ways, but they do have a drawback. And the drawback is they sometimes introduce a break in the text that is less than helpful. And I think this break between chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Acts is one of those less than ideal break points. So I want us to see the contrast between the best of givers and the worst of givers today. So I'm going to read, like I said, chapter 4. Uh, from verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11, as a single unit. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to take it out at this time and open it up to Acts chapter 4. Like I said, we'll start reading in verse 32. And as you're turning to the last part of Acts chapter 4, let me just remind you briefly of what we've seen so far in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 2, we read about how the church was born on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to dwell within the believers. And the church started with 120 believers in Jerusalem, and then when Peter pointed the people to Jesus by preaching this powerful sermon, the church grew to over 3,000 believers on that day. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, Luke told us how these believers were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the word of God, and they were devoting themselves to the fellowship, which was seen in the way they observed the Lord's Supper together and the way that they prayed together. And in addition to these practices, the believers in the early church were also devoting themselves to telling people about Jesus. And we know they were doing that because in chapter 2, verse 47, Luke tells us that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, as the early churches, they went out and told people about Jesus. They, they started to face some opposition. The apostles Peter and John, they were arrested and they were put in jail and then they were put on trial before the Sanhedrin. They weren't convicted of They weren't convicted of any crimes, but they were told not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. We've been reading about this over the last few weeks in chapters 3 and 4. And last week we saw how the early church, they prayed this effective prayer for boldness to continue witnessing for Jesus in the face of that opposition. And God answered their prayer and they continued to boldly witness for Christ. We'll see in our text today in verse 33 that the apostles continued to boldly tell people how Jesus' resurrection from the dead changes everything. Now the opposition that the early church was facing from the Jewish authorities, the devil was behind this opposition. You see, the devil wants to destroy the church. That's his desire. That's his goal. And so the first strategy that the devil tries to use to destroy the church is, is he influences the Jewish authorities to oppose the Christians. So this was some outside opposition. But that strategy wasn't working. Okay, as we've seen, the church has been growing in the face of all this opposition. So, so the devil realizes that his first strategy is not working, the outside opposition's not working. So what we're gonna see today is that he's gonna try a new strategy to destroy the church. What we're going to see today is that he's going to try to destroy the church from within. So let me read Luke's tale of two givers to you now, and then I'm going to point out how the devil tries to destroy the church from within. And I'm also going to share with you how we can defend ourselves against his attempts to do so. So if you are able, would you please stand at this time as I read God's holy and inspired word for us this morning? I'm going to read in Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32, and I'll read through chapter 5, verse 11. Here's what God's holy and inspired word says to us. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And we thank you, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit who dwells within us and helps us to, to understand your word and apply it to our lives. And I pray that he would do that this morning. Show us, God, how you want us to respond to this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So how does the devil try to destroy the church from within? Well, I think we see it pretty clearly right here in this passage. The devil tries to destroy the church from within through hypocrisy and greed. I just read for you a tale of two givers. In the last part of Acts chapter 4, Barnabas is presented as one who gave his money with righteous, God-honoring, and pure motives. He's the best of givers. And then in the first part of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and his wife Sapphira are presented as those who gave their money with impure, hypocritical, and greedy motives. They're the worst of givers. Now Luke tells us pretty clearly that the devil is behind Ananias and Sapphira's hypocrisy and greed. And how was the devil behind it? Well, I think the devil fed Ananias and Sapphira some lies. And they took the bait and they believed those lies. And that's what made them the worst of givers. In John 8, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. That's what the devil does. He speaks lies to us in hopes that we'll believe those lies and act upon them. Now, I have no doubt that the devil tried to feed these same lies to Barnabas too. But Barnabas didn't take the bait. Barnabas believed God's truth over God's lies, and that's what made him the best of givers. So given this contrast between the best of givers and the worst of givers, the main point that I'm going to make today is this. Because the devil wants to destroy the church, we must detect his lies and defeat them with God's truth. Because the devil wants to destroy the church, we must detect his lies and defeat them with God's truth. Barnabas did this. Barnabas detected the devil's lies, and he defeated them with God's truth. Ananias and Sapphira did not. Now, as we discuss this passage, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point out four lies that the devil will try to feed you. Four lies that the devil will try to feed you in his attempt to destroy the church. And what I'm also going to do is share with you how you can defeat each one with God's truth. So in his attempts to destroy the church, the first lie that the devil is going to feed you is this. It all belongs to you. It all belongs to you. And the way to defeat that lie from the devil is to see yourself as a steward. So here's the deal. The devil wants us to believe that all the money in our bank accounts, all the property that we possess, the devil wants us to believe that we own it all. And he wants us to believe that what we do with our stuff is nobody's business but our own. Now that sounds good to us. And it's easy for us to believe that. We say to ourselves, well, yeah, you know, I earned this money, and I worked hard for these things that I have, so yeah, yeah, it's all mine, and I can can do with it whatever I want. It sounds good to us. It makes sense to us. And so that's what we tell ourselves. That's not exactly what the Bible teaches. You see, the Bible teaches that God is the owner of everything, and we are his stewards. We're his managers. That means our job is to use the money and the possessions that God entrusts to us in ways that are going to honor and glorify him, in ways that are consistent with what he teaches in his word. Now, the believers in the early church, they saw themselves as stewards. If you look at verse 32 in chapter 34, Luke tells us that in the early church, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. The believers in the early church, they understood that they didn't own their stuff. They understood that God owned it and that they were his stewards. And so how did seeing themselves as stewards affect the way that the believers in the early church lived? Well, in verse 34, it says that those with extra land and houses sold them, and they gave the proceeds to the apostles, and the apostles then distributed that money to those in need so that there was not a needy person among them. The reason there was not a needy person among them is that the believers in the early church were using their possessions according to the instructions that God had given in His Word. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 through 8, God said that there should be no poor among His people. And He said that if someone fell on hard times, someone else with an abundance should help take care of them. And the believers in the early church, they were living this out. When a family in the early church fell on hard times, somebody else in the church would sell some extra house or extra land that they had and they would they would take the proceeds to the apostles and then the apostles would distribute it to the ones who had the need. And the reason that the believers in the early church were so willing to sell their stuff and give their money is that they saw themselves as stewards. They knew this is what God wanted them to do when they were in a position to do it. In verse 37 of our text, Barnabas is presented as an example of someone who did this. Barnabas is presented as someone who saw himself as a steward. Barnabas understood that everything he had was given to him by God, and he understood that his job was to use his money and his possessions in God-honoring and God-glorifying ways that were consistent with God's word. There's a lady named Trisha Meyer. She's a, an executive for, for Microsoft, and she and her husband have earned a lot of money in their careers. And Trisha and her husband, they've given a lot of the money they've earned to their church and to other Christian causes. And the reason they've done that is they've seen themselves as stewards. Trisha hasn't believed the devil's lies. She's defeated them with God's truth. Just listen to what she says. This is what Trisha says. She says, we still don't know why God put us in the situation we're in with all this prosperity but we're always looking to do His will with it. Stewardship is the Christian life. And every time we give, we acknowledge that everything we have has been given to us by God. Trisha gets it. She gets it, that God owns it all. And that what we have, we have because God has given it to us. And He's given it to us so that we will do His will with it. Grasping that truth is the key to seeing yourself as a steward. It's the key to defeating the devil's lie that it all belongs to you. Bible commentator Matthew Henry said, we can call nothing our own but our sin. We can call nothing our own but our sin. Greedy people don't get that. Greedy people call everything their own but their sin. Now the devil wants to use greed to destroy the church from within. The devil tried to use Judas Iscariot's greed to destroy Jesus. And he tried to use Ananias and Sapphira's greed to destroy the church. And I'll talk more about Ananias and Sapphira's greed in a little bit. But for now, I want you to know that the devil is an old dog who doesn't learn any new tricks. Okay, the devil tried to feed lies to the people in the early church to convince them that it all belonged to them. And guess what? He feeds us the same lies today. The devil knows that we are sinful human beings with sinful natures and he knows that we're prone to greed. And the devil knows that greedy people within a church can destroy it. So he tries to get us to buy into these lies. There's a reason why the apostle Paul when he was writing to the Colossians in Colossians 3:5 there's a reason why he says that we must put to death greed. Paul says that because he knows greed can destroy a church from within. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.9 that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul saying that greed can take a church and plunge it into ruin and destruction. Understanding that God owns it all, seeing yourself as a steward, That's the best way to protect yourself against greed. And that's the best way to protect this church from the destruction that greed can cause. In his attempts to destroy the church, the first lie that the devil is going to try to feed us is that it all belongs to us. And the best way to defeat that lie with God's truth is to see ourselves as stewards. Now, in his attempts to destroy the church, the second lie that the devil is going to try to feed you is this. It's all about you. It's all about you. And the way to defeat that lie with God's truth is to see yourself as a servant. I want you to look at what Luke tells us about Barnabas in verse 36. First, we're told that Barnabas' given name was Joseph. Barnabas was actually a nickname that the apostles gave to him, and that nickname means son of encouragement. Barnabas is going to show up later in the book of Acts in several places, and every time he shows up, we see him. Encouraging someone. So it was a very fitting nickname for him. Barnabas was always looking for ways to help people grow in their relationship with the Lord and help them grow in their service to the Lord. And the reason why Barnabas was such a great encourager is that he saw himself as a servant. Notice in verse 36, Luke tells us that Barnabas was a Levite. It's easy to read right past that, but there's some significance to that. When God formed the nation of Israel, he, he, he started by choosing a childless man named Abram. And God chose Abram out of all the people in the world, and he said that he was going to make a great nation out of him with many descendants. And God even changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Well, God kept his promise to Abraham, and Abraham had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had a son named Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel And Israel had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Well, one of those sons was named Levi, and his descendants were known as Levites. Okay, Barnabas was a part of that group. Now, God gave the Levites a special job to do in the Old Testament. God told the Levites that they were going to be his servants. God told the Levites that they would be his servants in the tabernacle and in the temple. Some of the Levites served God by being priests, and the rest of them served by being the priest's helpers. So to be a Levite was to be a servant. Okay? To be a Levite was to be a servant among the people of God. So if you were a Levite, you walked around and, and you kind of had this mindset. You would say to yourself, all right, I'm a Levite, so I'm here to serve God by serving others. Or you would say to yourself, I'm a Levite. It's not about me. It's about serving God and serving others. So when Luke tells us in verse 36 that Barnabas was a Levite, he's telling us that Barnabas saw himself as a servant. Barnabas had an abundance of possessions, and he viewed his abundance as an opportunity to serve others in need. That's why in verse 37, Barnabas was willing to sell one of his fields and give the money to the apostles so that they could then distribute it to the ones in the church who had need. Barnabas didn't buy into the lie that it was all about him. Barnabas didn't buy into the lie that he who accumulates the most toys wins at the game of life. Barnabas understood that if God had blessed him with an abundance, it was because God wanted him to use it to serve others. Ananias and Sapphira didn't get this. Yes, they sold a piece of property, and yes, they gave some of the proceeds to the apostles, but as we'll see in just a minute, they only did this because they were trying to make themselves look good in the eyes of others. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to use their abundance to serve themselves rather than others. They were trying to use their abundance to make a name for themselves. Now somebody who sees themselves as a servant, they're not concerned about making a name for themselves. They're concerned about making God's names great because they know that it's all about God, not them. Back in the 1800s, there was a a famous pastor and evangelist named D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody grew up in Northfield, Massachusetts, and his dream was to become a wealthy businessman. So when he was 17 years old, his uncle in Boston offered him a job to work in his shoe shoe factory. Now, D.L. thought this job just might be the thing that would launch him into a lucrative career, so he was interested in taking this job, but his uncle had one condition. If D.L. wanted the job, his uncle said that he had to go to church with him every Sunday. Now, D.O., he wasn't, he wasn't too keen on this idea of going to his uncle's church. He went to church with his parents in, in Northfield, but it was a different kind of church than his uncle went to, and uh, he wasn't so sure about this, this new church. But he really wanted the job, and so he said, Okay, uncle, I'll go to church with you on Sunday. Well, God used the teaching in that church to bring D.L. Moody into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And shortly after D.L. became a Christian, he moved to Chicago with hopes of making it big in the shoe business there. But God had other plans for D.L. Moody. Okay, God was working in D.L. Moody's heart, and God was helping D.L. Moody to see himself as a servant. And so D.L. Moody, he got plugged into a church in Chicago, and he began serving in that church's Sunday school ministry, And very quickly, that Sunday school ministry took off, and it grew exponentially. And when the people saw how God was blessing D.L. Moody's ministry in the Sunday school, they said, you know, you might want to think about starting your own church. And so he did that, and D.L. Moody's preaching became known all around the world. People traveled from all over the world to come and hear D.L. Moody speak, not only at his church, but also at some revivals and conferences that he would hold. Well, one day there was a large group of European pastors who who came over here to the United States to hear D.L. Moody speak at one of his conferences. And so following the the European custom of the time, when they went to the hotel that night and were getting ready for bed, they put their, their dress shoes outside of their hotel room door. You see, in Europe, you would do that, and the hotel staff would come through and clean your shoes at night. Well, this was America, it wasn't Europe, and things didn't work that way here. And so uh, on the first night of that conference, D.L. Moody's walking down the hallway of the hotel, and he sees all these European pastor shoes laying out in the hallway. And he was afraid that they would wake up and be disappointed and embarrassed if, if they saw that their shoes hadn't been cleaned overnight. So D.L. Moody gathered up all the shoes and took them back to his room, and he spent that night cleaning and shining all of these pastor's shoes. And then he put them back out. So when those pastors woke up in the morning, they found that their shoes had been shined. They had no idea it was D.L. Moody that did that. The only reason we know it was him is because one of his friends happened to walk into him, into his room when he was cleaning the shoes. D.L. Moody was a lot like Barnabas. He was a man with a servant's heart. Moody wasn't concerned about making a name for himself. He didn't buy into the devil's lie that it was all about him. He understood that it was all about serving God and serving others. So I want to ask, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a servant? Jesus saw himself as a servant. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if we're going to follow our Lord then we must see ourselves as servants. We must ask ourselves how we can use what God has given us to glorify God by helping others grow in their relationship with him. Faithful Levites like Barnabas lived like that. The Moody lived like that. The question is, will we live like that? In his attempts to destroy the church, the second lie that the devil will try to feed you is that it's all about you. The devil wants you to think that you deserve all the glory and he wants to try to convince you that you should use everything that you have to make a name for yourself. The devil will try to get you to live in a way where you look like you're all about God on the outside but you're really all about you on the inside. That was the case with Ananias and Sapphira. The devil knows that sooner or later that kind of hypocrisy will destroy a church. So it's important to defeat that lie from the devil with God's truth. It's not all about you. See yourself as a servant. We're here to glorify God and to help others grow in a relationship with him. Now in his attempts to destroy the church, the third lie that the devil will try to feed you is this. I won't bother you. I won't bother you. And the way to defeat that lie with God's truth is to see yourself as a soul in Satan's sights. We've talked about Barnabas and how Barnabas gave his money with righteous and God-honoring and pure motives. Well, let's look at Ananias and Sapphira now and how they gave their money with impure, hypocritical, and greedy motives. In the first two verses of chapter 5, we're told that Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, and Ananias brought some of the money to the apostle Peter, but he kept back some of the money for himself. And Ananias' wife Sapphira knew about this. Now, the problem wasn't that Ananias and Sapphira kept back some of the money for themselves. They had every right to do that. The problem with their giving is that they said they were giving all of the money that they got from the sale of their property, when in reality, they weren't giving it all. The problem with their giving is that they were lying and being hypocritical. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to impress everyone in the church and have everyone in the church believe that they were making this big, huge, sacrificial gift when in fact they really weren't. Ananias and Sapphira kept back part of the proceeds because they were greedy. They were greedy not so much for money, they were greedy for recognition and attention. You see, the text implies that Ananias and Sapphira had pledged to give 100% of the proceeds from the sale of their property. And so when Ananias brought the money to the apostle Peter, which wasn't 100%, of the proceeds, God revealed to Peter that Ananias was not bringing the full amount that he had pledged to give. That's why in verses 3 and 4, Peter accuses Ananias of lying. I just want you to notice this real quick here, okay? In verse 3, it says that, uh, Peter says that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 4, it says that Ananias lied to God. So if you can connect the dots here, you can see that Peter is referring to the Holy Spirit as God. As I've mentioned before in our study here in the book of Acts, we serve a triune God. That's one one God who is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we have in verses three and four here is some of the clearest evidence that the Holy Spirit is a part of the Godhead. Now, who or what influenced Ananias to lie to God, to the Holy Spirit, and keep back part of the money for himself? You see it right there in verse three. Peter points out who influenced Ananias. Peter says it was Satan that filled Ananias' heart and influenced him to lie. And it's very similar to what Luke said about Judas. Back in chapter 22 of Luke's gospel in verse 3, it says that Satan entered into Judas right before Judas went out to the chief priest to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now Ananias, he, he's not off the hook because Satan filled his heart and influenced him to lie. Ananias is still responsible for his sin. If you look at the way Peter addresses Ananias in in verse 4, he says, Ananias, you have contrived this deed in your heart, and you have lied to God. So Satan influenced Ananias, Satan tempted Ananias, but Ananias is ultimately the one who chose to commit the sin, and so he is responsible for his actions. Now guess what? The devil still tries to influence us. The devil still tempts us. And he does that because he's hoping that we'll choose to sin. The devil knows that if we give in to his temptations and choose to sin, he just might destroy a church. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here's what that means. That means if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ or even if you're just connected to the church in any kind of way, you've got a target on your back. If you're a Christian, or if you're connected to the church in any kind of way, you're in a spiritual battle, and the devil has his sights set on you. The devil will try to convince you that he's not real, and the devil will try to convince you that he won't bother you. But we cannot buy into those lies. We can't buy into those lies, because if we do, then we let our guard down. And when we let our guard down the devil will come in and exploit our weaknesses. And he'll do that because he wants to bring down the church. When I was in the ninth grade, I was on my school's wrestling team. And there was a tournament that I was really looking forward to, to wrestling in. It was a tournament that I thought I had a pretty good chance of going pretty far. And it was the kind of tournament where, where you wrestled a match, and if you won, you moved on, and if you lost, your day was done and you went home. Well, I won my first match in that tournament, and I moved on to the second round. But in the course of winning that match, I strained a muscle in my neck really bad. It was strained so bad that I couldn't turn my head from side to side. And if you know anything about how these kind of wrestling tournaments work in high school, you wrestle a match, and then you might have to sit around for a couple hours before you have your next one. So as I'm sitting around waiting to find out who my next opponent will be, one of my teammates could tell that something wasn't quite right with me after that first match. So he asked me if, if everything was okay. And I said, well, yeah, I, I strained this muscle in my neck, and I, I just can't turn my head from side to side. It really hurts. said, you know, I'm going to try to stretch it out. You know, hopefully it will loosen up and I'll be okay. And So I'm sitting around waiting for the next match, you know, to be announced. And and finally that time comes when when they – uh, reveal to me who my next opponent would be. You know who it was? It was my teammate. The one to whom I had just revealed that I had strained this muscle in my neck. Now, I naively thought that this guy's my teammate. He's my friend. He's not going to try to exploit my weakness and go after my injured neck. Well, as soon as the referee blew the whistle to start the match, do you know what my friend and my teammate did? He went for the jugular. I mean, literally. I mean, he, he went straight from my neck, and he did everything possible to twist and turn my head into these positions that would cause maximum pain, and so this match did not go very well for me. I gave it my best effort, but I, I just couldn't do that much, and so I lost it, and you know why I lost that match? Because I let my guard down, and I left myself in a vulnerable position. I paid the price for that. And I share that with you because I want you to be aware, I want you to be aware of your weaknesses. Okay? I want you to be aware of your weaknesses because Satan will try to exploit them. He'll look for that moment when you've let your guard down and then he'll try to come in and exploit those weaknesses. Now He'll try to convince you that he won't do that. But don't be naive and don't believe those lies. If Satan knows where your weakness is, he's going to come after it. If Satan knows that your weakness is gossip... He's going to feed you juicy bits of information about people in hopes that you will spread it and start a division in the church that will cause it to crumble. If your weakness is your temper, Satan's going to do things to needle you and provoke you in hopes that you're going to fly off the handle and and ruin a relationship with someone in the church. If your weakness is selfishness, Satan will try to convince you that the church exists to serve you rather than to serve God. And he'll do that so that you get frustrated and and leave when the church isn't meeting your needs. Or if your weakness is pride, like it was for Ananias, Satan's going to give you opportunities to look good in the eyes of others, but those opportunities will require you to compromise your integrity and the integrity of the church. So friends, I'm asking you, be aware of your weaknesses. Know that the devil is going to try to exploit them To destroy the church. Now the devil is going to try to feed you a lie that he won't bother you. Don't believe that lie. Don't let your guard down. Don't put yourself in a vulnerable position. If you're a Christian or if you're connected to the church in some kind of way, remember you've got a target on your back. You're a soul in Satan's sights. Know that the devil is going to try to exploit those weaknesses to bring down this church. Be aware of that. Now, the fourth lie that the devil will try to feed you in his efforts to destroy the church is this. God won't discipline you. God won't discipline you. And the way, to see, the way to defeat that lie with the truth is to see yourself as a saint that is still being sanctified. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they both thought that they could sin and get away with it. Boy, were they wrong. Look at verse 5. As soon as, as soon as Peter called out Ananias' lie, verse 5 says that he fell down and breathed his last. And then in verse 6, the young men take him out and bury him. And then in verse 7, Sapphira comes in about three hours later. And it says she did not know what had happened. And so Peter asked Sapphira about the, the amount of money that they were giving, about the sale price of the land, and she lied about it too. And verse 10 says immediately she fell down and breathed her last. Now, verse 5 and verse 10, those are what we call divine passive statements. Okay, Here's what that means. That means the text does not say that it was God who was responsible for their deaths, but it's implied. It's implied that God brought about the death of Ananias and Sapphira as a consequence for their sin. Now, in verse 5 and then in verse 11, we're told that great fear came over the whole church. And great fear came over the whole church because they saw firsthand in a very dramatic way just how seriously God takes sin. Now, Luke, he doesn't tell us if Ananias and Sapphira were true believers or not. Okay, people are going to try to debate that, and you can make strong arguments for either side. Whether Ananias and Sapphira were true believers or not, Luke's point makes the same. The lesson that Luke wants us to learn remains the same. Great fear came over the whole church because the true believers in the church, they learned something. They learned that they cannot sin and get away with it. That's the point that Luke's making here. Now, God's not going to strike everyone down immediately when they sin. If he did, none of us would be here. So praise God that he's merciful and gracious. God does not strike everyone down immediately when they sin. But at two key points in the Bible, he did this. And he did it to teach his people that they cannot sin and get away with it. Okay, the first time something like this happened is back in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua. When God's people were entering into the promised land. The first city they were supposed to attack was a city called Jericho. And God told them to destroy everything in that city. God told the people of Israel, don't take any of the items from Jericho for yourself. Well, there was this guy named Achan who thought he could sin and get away with it. He saw a cloak in the city of Jericho, and he saw some silver and some gold, and he took them, he dug a hole in the ground in his tent, and he thought he could hide the items there. Well, God knows all things, so God knew what Achan had did, and God revealed Achan's sin to Joshua, and God had Joshua put Achan to death for that sin. So when God's people were first moving into the promised land, God God. Took this very dramatic step to teach his people that they cannot sin and get away with it. And then, here in the New Testament, just as the church is being formed, God wanted to teach his people the same lesson. That's why he struck down Ananias and Sapphira. God wanted his people to know that he takes sin seriously. And he wanted his people to know that he loves them too much to just ignore their sin and let it go. You see, God has a plan to mold us and shape us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, God will have to discipline us for our sin. Now, like I said, God won't necessarily strike us dead the moment that we sin, but he may allow us to experience some unpleasant consequences for our sinful attitudes and actions, and that's because he wants us to learn our lessons. We need to realize that we're all works in progress. Okay, God doesn't instantly make us perfect people when we come to faith in Christ. God's working on us, and he works on us over time. God refines us over time to remove, to remove those impurities from our lives. This process has a name. It's called sanctification. And part of the sanctification process is experiencing God's discipline for our sin. The writer of Hebrews talks about it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, we're told that God disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. God's working on us to make us more and more holy like Jesus Christ. So don't believe the devil's lie that God won't see your sin. Don't believe the devil's lie that God won't discipline you for your sin. See yourself as a saint who is still being sanctified. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're a saint because your sins have been forgiven. But you're still being sanctified because you are not yet sinless like Jesus. Don't believe the devil's lie that you can sin and get away with it. So brothers and sisters, I want you to know this morning that the devil is trying to destroy the church. We see this in the book of Acts. We see it here and we're going to see it through the rest of the book of Acts. Here in Luke's tale of two givers, we see that the devil wants to destroy the church by feeding us lies in hopes that we'll believe them and act in sinful, greedy, hypocritical and selfish ways. What we need to do to remain faithful to Jesus and protect our church is to detect the devil's lies and defeat them with God's truth. Now listen for just a minute here. The biggest lie that the devil will try to feed you is that you can be good in God's eyes apart from Jesus Christ. Don't believe that lie. Friends, the only way that you can have your sins forgiven and the only way that you can be good in God's eyes is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and commit to following him. So I need to ask you this morning. Are you following Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you committed to following Jesus Christ for the rest of your life? If you've not yet made that decision to trust Jesus and to follow him, why don't you do that right now? The devil's going to try to feed you lies and talk you out of making that decision. Don't let them do that. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do, tell someone. Let us know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for being a God who loves us. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is merciful and gracious to us. Lord, all of us, we fall short of who you want us to be. And we thank you that you've offered us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would trust him for the forgiveness of our sins and him alone. And I pray that as we commit our lives to him, that we would live for his honor and glory. God, help us to see ourselves as stewards. You've been so gracious to bless us with what you have. Help us to understand that that you own it and that you desire for us to use it in ways that are going to honor and glorify you. Help us, God, to see ourselves as servants. The devil wants to, to convince us that we should live for ourselves. But, God, we're here to live for you. We're here to glorify you. Show us how we can do that. Father, I ask that you would help us to detect the devil's lies. Help us to defeat them with your truth. That's what Jesus did in the wilderness. And Lord, that's what we need to do here today. Because our enemy is out to bring us down. Not only as individuals, but as a church. But God, we thank you for what Jesus has said. That he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that in the end, you win, God. That even though we're in a battle right now against a spiritual enemy, we know how the story ends. You've told us. You revealed it to us. You win. The victory's already been won. It was won at the cross when Jesus Christ paid for our sin and then rose from the grave three days later. God, we thank you for that marvelous truth. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray, amen.